Hey, podcast listeners, before we get started, if the IRS is freaking you out right now and you want to do something about it, you can call me at 833-243-5455 and set up a free 30-minute consultation or log on to watkinspodcast.com. I've got a short letter on that No Frills page. It'll take you about 90 seconds to read. And if you like what I'm saying, you might want to consider becoming a client. And if not, hey, no big deal. Keep listening and subscribe to this podcast so you can keep hearing the free content on how you can fix your tax problem today. So if you owe the IRS, you may have noticed that they have been pretty active lately filing a bunch of liens. And this is the IRS's way of letting the world know that you have a tax problem. These liens are also pretty nasty if you're trying to sell your home or refi to a lower interest rate. It's a pretty extreme measure at the IRS, and it means they want all the money that you owe them, and they want it right now. But there are a few things you can do to get these things lifted short of paying everything that you owe right now. For example, if you owe less than $25,000, a tax professional may be able to get these lifted in about 90 days. If you owe more than $25,000, there are things like the IRS's Offer and Compromise Settlement Program that gets them off once they accept that. Now, we've helped thousands of taxpayers in an IRS mess, so we can probably help you out here too. We can help you out in all 50 states. So if you have a tax problem, I again encourage you to call me at 833-243-5455 or log on to watkinspodcast.com and set up a time there to talk to one of our tax experts about getting some help today. Now, back to your podcast. IRS problems are scary, but they don't have to be. Travis Watkins has been helping troubled taxpayers with customized plans to negotiate with the IRS and stop immediate threats to their livelihood so they can get a good night's sleep again since 1999. Now, here's Travis. All right. As promised, I'm Travis Watkins. Uh, I'm here to go through a couple of things that we talked about over the last few days in regard to collection information statements from the IRS, that Form 433, uh, Form 433A and B. I'll be going over a Form 433 today. That's a personal collection information statement. And this is a very important document, as I've mentioned before, because it forms the, I guess, the skeleton of every type of IRS relief program that I can think of and what the IRS uses it for is to figure out what your what they call reasonable collection potential is how much they can get out of you over the course of time that they have to collect the debt all things considered that number of years is 10 years or 120 months and of course some of that may have run Form 433A, as we went over the other day, uh, the last version of this was perfected in December 2012. You've got to put in all your personal information there. I recommend putting in the information as it exists on your last filed tax return to make matters easy for the IRS. This is a Form 433A that we prepared or we helped a client prepare at our office, and I blacked out all the redacted all the information, the personal identifiers here for their um, for their privacy and confidentiality. 
since it is our firm doing this and we have a power of attorney on file for this taxpayer we don't need to put in all those uh, phone numbers things like that you do have to put in your marital status your address your full name your name and social security number and date of birth for yourself and your spouse this taxpayer is married they um, have an employer there as you'll see on 4a of the department of justice so they're a federal employee maybe they are uh, enjoying the uh, time off from the <laughs> from the federal shutdown which is now in day like 34 or 33 or like 1 million i'm not sure um, they've been with their employer for 10 years they get paid bi-weekly they in section 3 part 7 have filed bankruptcy before they were dismissed from that bankruptcy about a year ago and it looks like about a five-year bankruptcy there so that tells us it was probably a chapter 13 type of bankruptcy those typically last five years it's like a payment plan type bankruptcy so nothing gets really discharged or taken away in the way of taxes in that type of of a bankruptcy a chapter 13 assuming that's what it is so moving right along, section four, page two, got a list out their checking accounts there. They have two checking accounts and notice um, on the side there, cash on hand, they've got zero in that bank account. Skipping down to the next section about investments, this particular taxpayer has a TSP, that's a thrift savings plan of about 21,336.52. And all that's equity value minus loan. There's no loans against it, it appears. So that's an asset that must be considered in this process. So the floor of anything that the IRS would be considering here, just I'll point this out while we're on this topic, is going to be $21,000. So that's the floor of any settlement with the IRS, for instance. It also goes into account for purposes of giving them even an, uh, an installment agreement depending on what type of installment agreement it is that will be the floor of anything that you're going to be offering to the IRS so to speak and, and you don't have to come forward with all that money that would be the next question and we'll get to all these things in later videos when we talk more in depth about the particulars of any type of IRS relief program there as we go through those but just know that's that has to be listed and it is in play for purposes of what we're doing for a relief project, okay? We'll come back to that in just a moment. Next section, page three, real property. Gotta list your real property there. Looks like two places, uh, two pieces of property. Purchased in 17 and purchased one in 2010. It's got the current fair market value of those things. How do you find out what that is or what the IRS would like to see on that line? You need to have, if, if you can't find or you can't get a, a real estate person to give you some kind of a, an idea of that, or I guess you could go on Zillow. The IRS uses Zillow now also. You can go to your county's tax assessor and figure out what your local taxation authorities have valued the, the property at there. These are, are listed at 136.4 and $83,000 on the second parcel. They both have 
pretty healthy uh, loan balances against those. On the first property, they're upside down. In fact, they have a current loan balance of 139000 and current market value of 136.4. And they want to know how much the amount of the monthly payment is, and that's going to go down in a later section here. But in this example, $950 on one and $600 on the other. Got a date of final payment of those notes, and then they want to know what the equity. In other words, the fair market value over here minus the loan balance, and in that above equation, it's uh, it would be zero on that first piece of property because in fact it's underwater. As I mentioned, the second one has a about a thousand dollars worth of equity there, and the IRS can challenge these things, of course, but do they? Uh, not with regularity with any type of real expert type of evidence on those things. In other words, they're going they're using pretty much the same types of things that you might be if you were doing this for yourself, the Zillow, the county assessors, those types of things. Next section, 17C, actually it'd be 18A and 18B. Sorry about that. They want to know your personal vehicles leased and purchased. They have a this taxpayer has a 2011 Chevy Silverado with 17 no, excuse me, 171,000 miles on it, which is way too old and too many miles really for you to ever get a loan against that from a bank. So therefore, there's really not going to be any equity to consider there. And that is reflected over to the right of line 18A in this example. 18B, um, that one is a, the second vehicle is a 2011 Chevy Silverado also with about 131000 on it. Purchase lease date of 2010, current fair market value of 7200 with a loan balance in excess of that. So there's no equity there. It's underwater as well. So nothing for the IRS to consider. Now skipping down to page four, that section five monthly income and expenses. This is, as I mentioned the other day, this is the money ball here. This is the thing that the IRS is most concerned about when talking to you about a collection alternative or remedy to your tax problem. So breaking that down little by little here, line 20, wages for this person. Remember there's a, they are a W-2 federal employee. They're monthly. Remember they get paid bi-weekly, so they're going to, um, do this little calculation that I'm pointing to right here. They're going to take their biweekly gross wages by 2.17. And what that shook out to be is uh, $6,178 a month. And they get the, the spouse is on Social Security, it looks like, for uh, $1,201. Remember, you do have to put your spouse on there in most circumstances. If there's some question as to that, you really need to get with a tax professional like myself to figure out what that what that exception might be. But for purposes of this worksheet, because it is just a worksheet in this format, wasn't signed as you can see down there. Go ahead and list the spouse's income monthly. Line 34 is the total income. That's that's the universe of what we're working with for purposes of coming up with some type of a remedy with the IRS, that's $7,379 in this example. And now skipping over to the right-hand side, that's total living expenses. Food, clothing, and miscellaneous, $1,202. And I've highlighted this for you because this is a, um, this is a national standard amount, okay? And 
you can find national standards on the IRS's irs.gov website and I'll put this in the comments since since I can't really flip over there right now but it's irs.gov uh, businesses tab small businesses self-employed collection financial standards tab all right and that will give you up to the uh, up to the moment and some of these are figured regionally so you'll have to find your region and it'll list out what states and everything go into that particular region so you find your monthly um, national standard expense amount and you list it right there now note here as an aside that you have to in actuality have at least one thousand two hundred two dollars worth of food clothing and miscellaneous monthly expenses all right so you can't just in most circumstances you can't just list that um, if you don't have it I think I'd still list it anyway though uh, because they an IRS collection person might go ahead and just give you the collection standards as of right but just know the rule is you gotta have at least that amount there now next question before we move on to that because a lot of people ask can I exceed this national standard amount of 1202 of course you can and that's where I earn my keep as a tax resolution person is by routinely exceeding this amount because as we'll talk about here in just a moment um, everything and we've, we've said this in the last video everything that anything that is left over here the net difference between your income and your total amount of living expenses that 1,191 in this line 50 that net difference is they think theirs and trying to be funny I said the uh, the and IRS <laughs> that word the and the IRS if you take out the space between the two words it's theirs that's line 50 they think that's theirs on a monthly basis that's what's that's what is in play for purposes of giving you some kind of a break there possibly all right so the more that you have on this right hand column total living expenses um, the less that number that they think is theirs is going to be so the trick is and I earn my keep listing and and defending legitimate um, expansion of a total living expense that's how I'll put it nicely expanding the legitimate living expenses of someone because nobody lives like this nobody thinks in terms of like well hey you know am I exceeding my IRS allowable living expense when it comes to vehicle operating costs uh, how about my health insurance is it in tune with what the IRS collection forms might say that the IRS would allow me of course not so you can't exceed these and you should you got to have legitimate ones. Hey, podcast, quick interruption here. Have you been up at 2 a.m. worrying about your IRS problem again lately? You know, IRS problems have a way of ruining all aspects of your life. They take a toll on you financially, physically, and emotionally. You can never really forget about them as they come back every morning when you wake up. It's time to call Travis Watkins Tax Resolution and Accounting Firm right now and start sleeping again tonight. Travis Watkins Tax will talk to the IRS for you and help you get the best deal available for your unique situation with the IRS with programs like the Fresh Start Initiative and the IRS's Offer and Compromise. 
Call me at 833-243-5455 and set up a free 30-minute consultation or log on to watkinspodcast.com. I've got a short letter on that No Frills page. It'll take you about 90 seconds to read. And if you like what I'm saying, you might want to consider becoming a client. And if not, no big deal. Just keep listening and subscribe to this podcast so you can keep hearing the free content that we offer on how you can fix your tax problem today. Now, if you call us in the next 30 minutes, we'll also send you our free confidential insider report, How to End IRS Problems Forever. That number again is 833-243-5455 or log on to watkinspodcast.com. Now back to your podcast. All right, back to the list here. Housing and utilities, $1,627. That is an actual amount. I didn't highlight it there. So housing and utilities, and these are all described. You'll see the little footnotes, housing and utilities for principal residents only, total or rent or mortgage payment is what they're talking about. Add the average monthly expenses for the following property taxes, homeowners or renters insurance, maintenance, dues, fees, utilities, and utilities include gas, electric, water, fuel, oil, other fuels, trash collection, telephone, cell phone, cable television, and internet services. So all these are are explained down here in the footnotes if you have questions on those. Uh, next one is vehicle ownership cost line 37. That's a national, uh, actually that one exceeds. I wrote no out to the side. Um, at the time that this one went down, the national standard was $470.80 per taxpayer, okay? So this is for two taxpayers, so they're way under, really, but they can only, they apparently only have one, um, they only have one vehicle. And, and that one's actual is 503. Next line, vehicle operating costs, 504. That's straight from the national standards as they existed at the time that we prepared or helped prepare this. Number 40, health insurance costs, those are actual. No national standard there. So in other words, anything that you can legitimately justify there in the way of health insurance, which, you know, it's required now, <laughs> uh, is $479 in this example. Number 41, out-of-pocket health care costs, $400. That's a national standard. These other ones, life insurance in line 44, current year taxes in 45, secured, oh, I just jumped there, secured debts on line 46. Those are all actuals that you would possibly have to substantiate if the IRS were to call you out on those. <clears throat> and while we're on that, we might as well point out this part at the very bottom that says, after we've completed our review of 433A, you may be asked to provide verification of the assets, encumbrances, income, and expenses reported. Documentation may include previously filed income tax returns, pay statements, self-employment records, bank and investment statements, loan statements, bills or statements for recurring expenses, etc. Just know that you may be called upon in this process, and likely you will in some category of these, to present your evidence, your bills, for instance, and all these things that are listed to substantiate any of these numbers, all right? Total living expenses up on line 49 of this example is $6,188. When we subtract that to the total income of $7,379 per month, it shakes out to a net difference on line 50, $1,191. This is the 
reasonable, excuse me, this, this is the net disposable income, okay? Net disposable income, NDI, $1,191, all right? Now, next question, next thing that has to happen in this process is you take that NDI, that net disposable income, <clears throat> and you take this amount times the number of months that remain on the collection statute expiration date, or CSET, all right? That's that thing that we've talked about in previous videos. It's their IRS's statute of limitations, okay? And how do you find that out? Go back and watch the video where we talk about the IMFOLT, uh, I-M-F-O-L-T, type of transcript that tells you when the last day that the IRS can come after you for. So you calculate, you extrapolate that, $1,191, take it times the number of months that that IMFOLT transcript shows that the IRS can still come after you, the, the IRS's CSED or statute of limitations. That number, let's just do it for ease of, of example here, let's just say that there was only one year left on the IRS's collection statute information or expiration date, let's say it's 12 months, um, you take 12 times 1,191, and I've heard that you're never supposed to do math while you're live, but mainly, I guess, because it's hard to uh, get that to come up, but anyway, uh, $1,191 times 12 months in that example leaves a collection um, a the reasonable collection potential they call it or RCP that's a fancy IRS word reasonable collection potential um, it's fancy for what the IRS thinks it can get from you within the time it has to collect the NDI of that one was is $14,292 all right so imagine we wrote 14929 or two 14,292, excuse me, as the net disposable income. Then you go back up here to the assets portion of things, page two, for example, in this one. And remember, we talked about there's that thrift savings plan that this person had. 21,336.52 is in play. So you gotta add that in there. And brings the reasonable collection potential for one year to $35,628.52. All right, so the IRS can get $35,628.52 in this example over the course of uh, time that it still has to collect the debt, all right? So in that example, there's plenty of, of, uh, of money left over in assets for the IRS to, uh, to collect. Over, the, over these 12 months in that example, all right? So the floor of, the, um, of, of anything that this taxpayer would be asking for would be that $35,628 number, all right? So as you can see, that's a pretty healthy number, and so it would really behoove this taxpayer to get some help or to really bear down on this and try to bump up those allowable expenses or possibly um, 
maybe borrow or liquidate some of that um, to uh, get get those off of the the, the books, so to speak, uh, so they're out of the way of the collection, uh, reasonable collection potential calculation. And then you can use that money to, to pay the IRS, of course. Um, but, you know, borrowing against those things takes it off of the reasonable collection potential calculation. Uh, bumping up allowable expenses legitimately would be a huge thing for this particular taxpayer. All right. So that's kind of how the 433A works in, in, uh, in theory with some real live examples there. And I hope you found this to be helpful. And if you'd like more of these types of things, then you can get my book, which is at TravisWatkinsBook.com. has some of these things in it, although we're deep diving quite a bit more in these Facebook Lives. Or if you need help immediately and you don't always have tons of time to bear down and, and you know do a whole lot of planning, legitimately boosting allowable expenses, for example. So you might want to consider giving a tax professional, someone like us, a call to help you out with these kinds of things and to stop, you know, levy activity, for example. Uh, I, the IRS is collection wheels, in other words, to give you some time to, to make sure that you're, you're putting the best 433A out there for your situation, all right?